It's also going to be a great day here today as we're starting a series. It's a two-week series, and it's called A Thousand Generations, and we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob for the next couple of weeks. And if you're unfamiliar with who Jacob is, you will find him in the Old Testament, and he's a central figure in the redemption story of humanity. Thousands of years before Christ walked on earth and died for our sins, there was a man by the name of Abraham, and God chose Abraham to sire this lineage, this this, this people, the Jews, the Hebrew people, who would ultimately birth the Savior, Jesus Christ. From Jesus, of course, we know that our redemption is formed and held. Abraham gave birth to, or he didn't give birth to a son, he had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be hanging out with Jacob. And before I jump into this, we, we want to set this up a little bit that you need to understand. You're going to see this from the passage, but I want you to, to have this in the back of your mind. Mind, Jacob and Esau from the womb are in rivalry from one another. They are a little bit beyond what normal sibling rivalry would be. These two men hate one another. And it's important to understand that as we read this scripture, you're not misreading this. They are in a real battle for who's going to be in first place, who's going to be the best. So I want to jump with that straight into the scripture today. Genesis chapter number 25. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 25, starting in verse number 19. Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armin of Pandorama, and the sister of Laban, the Armin, uh, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went and inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the young, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins who came from her womb. The first came out red, and all of his body was like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and he, his hand holding Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling among the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me have some of the red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now let's recap what's going on. We have two men who are fighting from birth. They're fighting from the womb and this rivalry between them is a big deal. In fact, the, the fighting in the womb was so serious that Rebecca, their mother, prays. She can feel the, 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 the boys tossing in her, in her belly and she prays, Lord, what's going on? And God begins to give her a word and an insight, a summary to their lives. He says, two men, two nations are in your womb and they're going to be divided from birth. And the older one 
one is going to serve the younger one. This would be completely against the cultural norm of that day. The older one was the one who would always lead the family. They would get a double portion of the inheritance. And so what God was trying to do in the very beginning is to tell them, look, this is going to be completely different than what you're used to. I am sovereign and I decide how this is going to go. And the older one is going to serve the younger one. Now the Bible tells us that these two boys grew up to be polar opposites. Esau was a hunter. He was a man's man. He was an outdoorsman who was skilled in his craft. He was dad's favorite. Everyone looked to Esau. He's strong. He's manly. And he's the one that's going to do everything by force. Jacob is the politician. He dwelled among the tents. He was a conniver. He deceives. He schemes to get what he desires. And he is his mom's favorite. He will take what he wants through deceptions and through lies. You have two radically different men, two radically different approaches to life, and two men who desperately need God to intervene in their life. Now, when we read this account, we get a sense that neither one of these men are satisfied, nor are they settled in life. Their fight with one another seems to be an overflow and a manifestation of the fight that's inside of their own heart. It's a manifestation, an overflow of the own war that is struggling inside of them. These two men are at war with themselves, and this storm brewing inside of them results in explosion towards one another. And I imagine a lot of people can identify with these two men in whatever season of life that they're in. There's many people in our day, in our culture, that are unsettled in their lives. There seems to be constant frustration. There's constant stress. There's constant weariness that manifests itself in destructive habits towards ourselves, towards our families, towards our coworkers, and generally the people that are around us. A lot of us see these symptoms of this type of lifestyle. There's constant fighting. There's constant unsettledness. There's a, there's a deep longing inside of our hearts. We're struggled to identify the source of this unsettledness, but we know that it's there. And so as a result, we are consistently and constantly trying to bring some peace to our life. We start manipulating and moving the different pieces of our life, hoping that something settles in. We, we look and say, perhaps if I had a change in my spouse, if maybe I'm not happy in this relationship, or, or maybe if I had a, a career change, or maybe even some of us try radical things in life, but yet we still find ourselves, just like Jacob and Esau, we are dissatisfied, we are unsettled, and we are unhappy. We don't know exactly why, we just know that those feelings are there. And here's the big idea of this message. Every single one of us, every human that's ever been born is an unsettled creature until their creator calls their name and soothes their savage hearts. We're going to look at two men today who are an example to us of the difference of how an encounter with God will change your life. Esau and Jacob show us two men. One, both of them are unsettled. One will have an encounter with God and his life will change forever. The other one never has that encounter and he lives and ultimately will die in his dissatisfaction and his unsettledness in life. So we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to look and walk through about 40 years of their life. And through the process of looking at these 40 years, we're going to see some principles that we need to understand in our own life so that we ultimately come to a place where we have this encounter with God and he settles our hearts and brings us the peace that we all long for and desire. The first thing that Jacob and Esau teach us is to be settled in life, we need to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God. 
God is sovereign over every person who's ever been born, and all of us need to learn to trust and submit to God's sovereign plan. It's very interesting when we start reading that these two men are struggling in the womb before they're born. In the womb, they're fighting with one another to get ahead. In fact, we're told that as Esau is born, Jacob is holding on to his heel, trying to drag him back into the womb. Now, I am super competitive. I learned that there are several of you men on Friday night that are super competitive, a lot of us hate to lose, but this takes competition to a whole nother level. The interesting thing about this rivalry before they are born is that God ordained that Jacob would be the stronger nation. And God said explicitly that the older would serve the younger. Yet Jacob's entire life, he is struggling and he doesn't seem to trust in the sovereign words of the Lord. Jacob seems to spend his entire life scheming to get ahead. In our passage, it says that Esau was on the verge of death and starvation, and yet Jacob doesn't even seem to care. Jacob in this moment sees an opportunity to force his hand. He sees an opportunity to scheme and to steal the birthright from his brother. How lousy is that? If your brother comes to you starving to death and you have some leftover soup, the decent thing to do would at least give him a bowl of soup. I mean, what is that going to cost Jacob? Jacob, on the other hand, though, sees it as an opportunity to get his. Jacob should have known that what the Lord had promised. Jacob should have known that God intended to bless and be a blessing to Jacob. Instead, however, of trusting God's sovereign plan, Jacob decides that he's going to steal the blessing. He tries to force his promotion instead of trusting the Lord for his promotion. Jacob trusted his own plan more than he trusted the sovereignty of God. And every single one of us will struggle with this this emptiness of self-sufficiency and trying to fill it with our own abilities. Men especially struggle with this because men like being self-sufficient. How many of you men hate asking for help? Right? I hate asking for help. Why? Because I don't want to pretend that I need anybody else. I want to be able to say that I can do things on my own. Jeff Foxworthy made a joke one time about men. He says, you have a bunch of men out in the field with a chainsaw. One guy cuts his leg off and he'll hobble around on one foot saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. Right? Throw it in the ice chest. We'll go to the hospital. They'll sew it back on. It'll be fine. Why? Because men hate asking for help. One of the hardest lessons in life that God will teach any of us is that we must trust him to be sovereign in our life, to meet our needs, to be our provision in our own life. Make no mistake about it. God is sovereign. He has a plan and his plan does come to pass. In scripture, we see that God knows exactly the beginning from the end. We don't know all the details of how he makes everything work out. Theologians have been debating for thousands of years how the will of man versus the sovereignty of God works together, and I don't, won't begin to pretend to understand any of that, but here's what I do know, is that there's nothing that's beyond the power and the might of God, and when he says something's going to happen, it will happen. God's sovereignty and his power caused the prophet uh, Jeremiah to cry out in Jeremiah 32, 17, oh Lord, is it you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm? Nothing is is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for God. So when he says he's going to do something, we have to trust in his sovereignty. So when God said that there were two nations and the older would serve the younger, then that was what was going to happen. 
Now, this sounds bad for Esau. Who wants to serve the younger brother? If you're an older sibling, you know that the younger sibling doesn't have the wisdom or the insight or the strength that you have, and you don't want to serve the lesser person. However, God said that Esau would be a nation too. God wasn't saying that Esau wasn't ever going to be able to do anything or to accomplish anything. God had a purpose for him. He had potential. God wanted to use him in a great way. That's better than a lot of us will have. I don't have any famous people in my family tree. I don't think any nations are going to be coming from my lineage. God spoke sovereign blessing over both these men, and yet both men failed to see that blessing. They forgot who their source was. They forgot that a sovereign God had called things into existence. And as a result, Jacob felt like he had to steal everything in life, and Esau despised the blessing that he had received from God. God is sovereign in your life and in my life. Culture has laid a heavy burden upon the modern day man. We're told that we're to be good providers, that we're to make sure that our family can have the best that we can give to them, that we are to have all the answers in life, that we're to go on adventures and have fun along the way, that we need to be successful, and apparently we need to have a good dad or joke or two in our back pocket. Those are the expectations that culture has laid upon man. Culture has also laid a heavy burden upon the modern woman. She is to be put together and creative, and she's to walk and carry herself with grace, and she's to be able to cover the grace of a, or cover any cover of a magazine. She's to have the answers. Listen, it's good for all of us to have dreams and ambitions and goals. It's best to provide for our family. It's good to go some adventures along the way, but those external pressures, none of us are self-sufficient enough to meet them. And what it does is it causes inner turmoil inside of us, and we allow ourselves to get caught up in the rat race of life, worrying about being successful, and we forget that our source is ultimately in the Lord. He's the only one that's going to bring our joy. He's the only one that's going to bring our peace. He's the only one that can heal our hearts. He's the only one that can give us purpose. He's the only one that can supply everything that we need. And yet we feel like we are the ones responsible. If God called us and planted us in this day, in this age, in this place, then there is for a reason. And when we forget that, we tend to do one of two things. We tend to steal the blessing or we tend to sell out. It's exactly what Jacob and Esau did. So many people forget that God is their source. They sell out and become a workaholic. So many people forget that God is their source. And so they try to steal love in the arms of someone else. So many people forget that God is their source. And so they give everything they have to find some sort of sense of accomplishment, never to find it. Now, let's pause real quick. We need to address this issue of the birthright. What's, what's this business about the birthright? Why is this so important? Why is this such a big deal? The birthright at the time of the inheritance was for the eldest son to receive a double portion. When the father died, the inheritance was to be divided, but the oldest would get a double portion. However, in our context, it's even more serious than an inheritance of, of wealth. It had to do with the blessing that God had provided to Abraham that was to be passed down through his lineage. What was the blessing that Abraham received from the Lord? It was a blessing through his offspring that all the people on the earth would be, would be blessed. And ultimately, it's pointing to Jesus Christ. And so when Esau sold out this birthright and Jacob stole it, they were playing with the very thing that God wanted to use to bless all people. And here's what you need to understand. As a believer, you have a birthright. 
as a son, as a daughter of Christ, you have a purpose and a birthright. So when you start selling out or trying to steal the blessing that God has placed on your life, what you're doing is you're playing with the very thing that God gave you to be a blessing to yourself, to your family, and to everyone you come in contact with. This is serious when we try to do that. So don't allow yourself to be unsettled to the point where you forget the trust and the sovereignty of God. To avoid being settled, the second thing we need to see is this. We need to be on the move. We need to be on the move. Men need to be on the move, especially. That's why we like to drive fast, right? That's why driving to Rogers and you get behind somebody going 35 is just the worst ever because we can't get around them. I mean, it was just terrible, right? We got places to go. We got things to do. We don't like being stuck. It's the main reason why I hate Theme parks. Do we have anybody that hates theme parks as much as I do? I hate theme parks. Okay, so there's three of us that hate theme parks, so we're the stick in the mud. I hate theme parks because you stand in line, and it's hot. To do what? To ride on a contraption that somebody built, that the lowest bidder, mind you, built, and some teenage kid who's looking at girls is operating. They don't care if there's a wheel missing on that trolley you're about to get on. They don't care if it's been greased in the last decade. They're just sitting there hitting a button and arms and legs, man, and off you go, okay? I am not getting on the death trap known as a roller coaster. I'm dead serious. I'm not getting on them, so don't ask. So, not only do I have to wait in line, I could die at the end of the line, right? I'm not doing it. Unfortunately, from time to time, all of us get stuck. All of us get stuck. Now, we don't have time to read all of it this morning for the sake of time, but let me just kind of narrate what's going to happen here in, in Genesis chapter 27. When these men are 40 years old, they're at a point in life where both of them have been in a holding pattern for 40 years, waiting for their father to die. One day, Isaac is old, he's blind, and he calls Esau and he says, look, he says, I'm going to give you the blessing. I want to bless you. Go out, hunt, kill something, make me some dinner, bring it here, and I'll bless you. Now, Rebecca, on the other side, hears what Isaac says to Esau. And so she goes and gets Jacob and says, look, your father's going to bless Esau, so here's what you're going to do. Go kill a lamb, cover yourself in some skin. He can't see very good. He's losing his faculties, and here's what you're going to do. I'm going to make a meal. You're going to go in there, tell him that you're Esau, so he'll give you the blessing, and then, you know, it'll go from there. And so that's exactly what they do. Esau goes out to kill. Jacob comes in. He kills a lamb, covers himself in a hair. Uh, Rebecca makes him a meal. He takes it to his father, and his father says, is that you? my son Esau? And Jacob lies and says, yes, it is. And then he says to, to Jacob, well, it sounds, like, it sounds like my son Jacob's voice. Let me feel your arm. So he feels his arm and he can feel the hair on his arm. And he says, you do feel like my son Esau. What's going on with this? What's going on with this? How did you kill something so quickly? You can tell that Isaac knows something's up, but he can't see. And Jacob says this, he says, God gave me favor. Ooh. Talk about, you know, we always talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain isn't about cursing. You shouldn't do that either, but it's not about cursing. Taking the Lord's name in vain is using God's name, carrying his name to benefit yourself. It's exactly what he just did. Moving on. So he goes and he eats the food. He's, ah, you must be my son Esau. And then he gives him the blessing. Jacob skinnies out of there real fast. And here comes Esau with the real meal. He comes in there. And Isaac figures out what happened. He said, I don't, 
you, you've been tricked. I've given the blessing to your brother. And Esau says, is there another blessing for me? And he starts weeping, and crying. And Isaac says, nope, no other blessing for you. Nothing I can do about it. What a shame and tragedy this story is. Now, from a surface, what we see is two men are stuck in a rut, waiting for their father to die. That's crazy. As I said, they're 40 years old at this point. They haven't accomplished anything. These men appear to be completely stuck in a rut, waiting to die, for their father to die. When you get stuck in a rut, you know what happens? You get bored. Why? Because your life is meant to be in rhythm. When you, look at, when you look at creation, here's something I want you to think about. Creation is constantly in rhythm. The sun comes up every morning. We set our watch to it. You tend to have the same routine every day. You're in rhythm. When you look at the seasons, it's in rhythm. The spring, the summer, the fall, the winter, unless you live in Oklahoma, it's summer and winter and summer and winter. Most other places in the world, though, there's, there's seasons, there's rhythm that goes with it. You have the rainy season, the dry season. And we know this to be true because when we listen to music, we like it when it's in rhythm. Man, I walked in a handshaking time over here, Chris, and I don't know if you listened to that first song, but that Chris over here on the drums was putting on a clinic for being in rhythm. It sounded good. You walked in, you're like, man, this is good. I'd start dancing if I wasn't, you know, if I could dance. I can't dance. So I just, I have no rhythm when it comes to dancing. I play the drums. That's weird. Anyways, he was in rhythm and it sounds good. You don't even have to be a musician to hear that. You say, man, that works. That's good. But when it's out of rhythm, when one person is off, everybody knows it. You're like, whoa, what's that? I can't play, but I know that's terrible because it's out of rhythm. It doesn't work. You know what's really interesting about music? I was watching this video a while back, and it was talking about the potential for music. Like how many songs could be made? There's 12 notes in a scale, so if you take all of them and you put them together, how many songs could you make? And they've actually used big computers and tried to figure this out, and they can't get to the bottom of it. So they're just going to say, it's an infinite amount of music could be played. What's really interesting, though, is they started analyzing all the top 50 hits from the last, you know, 50 years, and almost all of them use the same chord progression, the same rhythm, the same timing. Why? Because that's what we like. It sounds good to us. It's in rhythm with us. And here's what we need to see from these men. When you get out of rhythm for what God wants you to do and you get stuck in a rut, you get bored. And when you get bored, you start justifying poor decisions. When you get bored in your marriage, you're going to justify poor decisions. When you get bored in your walk with God, you're going to justify poor decisions. When you get bored with your family, you're going to justify poor decisions. When you get bored in church, you're going to justify poor decisions. When you get bored in life, you always justify poor decisions. You need to be in the movement. You need to be in the rhythm that God created for you to be. God had created these men to be in movement. They were to be doing something. They were to be carrying on the blessing that God intended to pass through this family. And instead, they were sitting there 
there in a rut waiting for someone to die. And too many Christians are sitting in a rut waiting for something just to happen. They're waiting for something to change in their life instead of going to the Lord saying, where am I out of rhythm? What do I need to be doing right now? What is it that you're calling me to do? Notice these are two sides of the same coin. On the one side, you have to trust God's sovereignty, but on the back side, you have to do something about what God sovereignly says for you to do. You can't stay seated in the proverbial chair of life. God created you to be in rhythm and movement. So the question then inevitably comes, well, what am I supposed to be doing? I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not sovereign over your life, and neither are you. That's why you need to go to the Lord saying, God, you have planted me in this time, in this season, in this family, in this church, in this county, in this state. What have you called me to do right now? You need to find your purpose, and you need to get into motion with that purpose. Sometimes it's time to get a fresh word from the Lord for your life. Sometimes it's time to open up your word and say, God, challenge me anew. Prune my heart for what you want to do. You have a fresh encounter saying, God, I need you new in this season. And God will spark that adventure. He'll dislodge you from that rat race and he'll move you forward. I want to close with this, the third thing, if the worship team wants to come back. To avoid being unsettled, first, we need to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God. Second, we need to be on the move. And third, we have to have an encounter with the Lord. Once Jacob realized, or excuse me, once Esau realized that Jacob had stole the blessing, he does the logical thing. He decides, I'm going to kill Jacob. He stole the blessing. I'm going to kill him. I'm a hunter. He's a politician. Game over. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest, right? We took Lucky and sent him to to Washington, D.C. Those guys are in trouble. This moment was a point of reckoning for both these men. Both men had an opportunity to get right with God. One man does and the other one doesn't. Genesis 28 verse 6 says this, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob. He sent him to Padam Aram to take his wife from there, and that he was blessed him as directed. He said, You shall not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padam Aram. And so when Esau saw that Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wives, besides the wives he had. So here's, here's Esau. He sees this whole thing play out. Instead of trying to get right with his God, instead of trying to get right with his family, he looks, he says, Jacob stole from me. Blame my family. Oh, you don't want me to go take wives over here? That's exactly what I want to do. Oh, you don't want me to touch this? That's exactly what I'm going to touch. Jacob did something different, though. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and headed towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there tonight because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up from heaven to reach the top to reach heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the east and to the west and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you where 
wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And when Jacob awoke he, from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none like it other than the house of the Lord. This is the gate of heaven. Esau and Jacob were both broken men. One man flees and goes deeper into his sin, and the other one has an encounter with the Lord. Esau didn't run to God. Instead, he ran away from God. Jacob, on the other hand, went to his old family homeland, and he falls asleep with literally nothing to his name, and he uses a rock as his pillow. But that night, God changed everything for Jacob. Jacob had this amazing encounter with God. He sees heaven ripped open. He sees the angels of God ascending and descending. And he sees the Lord. And not only does he see the Lord, but he hears the Lord give him a promised blessing over his family. His true heavenly family was confirmed the blessing that his earthly father has spoke over him. If you read the rest of the story of Jacob's life, you'll see that his life was never the same after this moment. The sovereign Lord met Jacob and got him unstuck in life. And Jacob starts this amazing journey for the Lord. Yeah, it's not perfect. There's some bumps along the way. But you see the shift take place in Jacob's life. Before this event, Jacob is chasing, but he's never obtaining. He's not complete. And then he has this encounter with God. And listen, we're never going to be complete and on track until we have an encounter with our Creator. Some of us right now are so frustrated in life. Things don't seem to be breaking out the way we want them to. Sometimes we have to push pause and we have to run to the, the feet of the cross and say, Lord, get me unstuck right now. I need to hear you call my voice or my name and hear your voice call my name. Why did God meet Jacob at Bethel when Jacob had been such a heathen? That's a good question to ask, ain't it? Why did God meet Jacob? What had Jacob done? done to earn God's favor? You know what the answer is? Nothing. Nothing. Our actions never merit God's favor. God is searching for you, and he's searching for me. Jacob then says something super interesting in this passage. Surely the Lord was in this place, and I was unaware of it. Now, you can think of that statement one of two ways. We're not completely sure what Jacob meant by that. Maybe Jacob meant the Lord is right here in Bethel, and I was unaware of it when I laid my head down at night. Or perhaps the Lord was in this place, meaning the Lord had been in my home. He had been with me the whole time, and I wasn't aware of it. Jacob had been fighting and wrestling, and he had missed God throughout the whole part of it. And I want you to know something. God is always with you. You just might not have been aware of it. You might be stuck right now in life fighting and warring and God was with you the whole time, but you can't see it because you're so focused on what's going on in your own life. God had always been with Jacob, but he couldn't see it. He was sovereign in his life when Jacob was bored and desperate and now he needed to see it. And as a result, Jacob makes this vow to the Lord. It says this, so early in the morning, verse 18. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that name Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. 
Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to the Lord's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone that I have set up a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. For some of us, it's time to make a vow to the Lord saying, God, I'm giving you everything I got. You're it. You've been with me the whole time. I wasn't aware of it. And I'm giving you everything.